Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. How are you? Welcome to another episode of All the Things, the show where we talk about all things related to God, life, and the Bible. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. Awesome. Welcome. And we also have Bob helping us out on the show. Bob the Button Pusher Bontrager. Yes. <laughs> pushing all the buttons now. oh we got a little extra yes yes a little extra welcome welcome i found okay. i got a haircut Woo! oh well, that was know. the big event of the week the big, the big event of the week so you've had some events well this week has oddly felt a little bit more it calm hasn't, in it the, hasn't in the been news. As crazy yeah I'm, I'm grateful for that i'm grateful for calm news weeks the Good. show is brought to you by Center for Biblical Unity. Yes. And the Theology Mom podcast. Ooh, that was last week. Yes. And uh, Family 210 Clothing, where you can get your Center for Biblical Unity merch. Yes. If you have not ordered a Center for Biblical Unity shirt yet, I say go out and do it. Click on the link and order a shirt. The proceeds go directly to the Center for Biblical Unity and you have a really cool shirt. Yep, five dollars in other colors. Five dollars of each purchase goes directly to us to help launch the Center for Biblical Unity. Yes, and we have more designs coming. Yes, we do so, very soon. Yeah. It's really exciting, really yeah. exciting. You can also visit the Center for Biblical Unity dot com to find out more about us, what we're standing for, what we're doing, and how you can support. Aside from a shirt. And if you want to support the show right now, all you have to do is just click on that share button there on social media. Please share, like, follow, give it a thumbs up on YouTube. Okay, so last summer we did a show on women in ministry. We did. And uh, man, that seems like so long ago now. And talked a little bit about my two and a half decade struggle with uh, the, the question of, of women in ministry. And, and what to do with that. What to do with that and the whole like complementarian versus egalitarian uh, situation. There, I didn't even know those terms. Let's be clear. <laughs> so that's that's, you know, just go ahead. Moni, and keep Moni's just telling me I was I trying got, to give it to you silently. But um, say, this is just such yeah. a mess. All right. So um, right now, I think I've 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 read. Gosh, I don't know probably 20,000 pages on the whole women in ministry debate. Um, and one thing I've been learning in recent years is that Protestants just basically have these two approaches to the question. And those seem to be the only two options available. What's really been the most helpful to me is actually going back in history and beginning to try to understand the issue of women in the early church mm -hmm. and trying to get out of my American 21st century Protestant bubble yeah, and going back into a more ancient context. Yeah. To really see, well, you know, these people were the closest to Jesus. Yeah. How did he do it? How did they do it? Yeah. Like knowing that they, some of the, many of them walked with the Lord yeah. and had an entire framework yeah. or, you know, thought process of 
how how do we address the topic of women in ministry? And what does it the, look like? How did the subsequent generations yeah. of the early church understand that? Because what I'm noticing, like for example, in egalitarianism, which is this this it, it used to be a view of focusing on your spiritual gifts as a woman. Uh, it used to be a view about empowering women to use their spiritual gifts. Mm-hmm. But in recent years, I'm seeing egalitarianism get more and more captured by critical theory, and in particular, feminist theory. And I've actually stopped recommending certain resources that I used to recommend people go check out because they've become so overrun with critical theory. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that they're actually guided so much by scripture as they used to be. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to our conversation tonight because uh, we don't want to fall into like the whole smash the patriarchy narrative that our culture is running toward right now. And even some in Protestant churches, let's step back and ask the question, how has the church, how did the early church historically understand these issues related to women and help that inform and shape our, our souls and our minds so that we're not just inadvertently bringing in the culture. So egalitarianism would be the view that women should be in ministry, should participate equally with men. That there's no position that's not open to them. Okay. That's a way of saying it. Okay. Um, there's and then a, the there's other, other nuances view. there, but that would be it. The complementarian view would say that... Um, it's called complementarianism. Yeah. Okay. Th- they would say that um, there's different roles for men and women. Okay. God-ordained, God-designed God roles, which I think there's some truth in both of these perspectives. Yes. Yeah. And so... It just kind of depends on how you come at it. Anyways, I've been wanting to do a show for a while on um, kind of a more historical approach to these questions. So super excited to have my recent uh, New Testament professor. Uh, I think I mentioned on the show a few times in the spring, I was taking a class on New Testament survey at a local um, Coptic Orthodox seminary. And uh, uh, my professor was Dr. Jeannie Constantinou, who is just a an amazing New Testament scholar. So super honored to have her with us on the show tonight. So I want to welcome her, Dr. Constantinou. Thank you very much for having me, Monique. And Christmas (laughs) with you. Oh, it's so great to to, uh, have you here. I just am so excited about this. And and we have many um, viewers who are Protestant. We do have Mm -hmm. a few that that are Orthodox. I think all of my Orthodox friends are watching tonight. Uh, So... Maybe we could start by talking a little bit about your background and where you teach. And maybe you can just tell us a little, give us a little understanding of of Orthodox Christianity. Okay. All right. Let's start with uh, who I am. Yes. I'm 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 married to a priest, a Greek Orthodox priest. He's been a priest for 40 years. We've been also married for 40 years. So uh, I do think that being a clergy wife very involved in parish life and ministry, gives me a unique perspective on these things from both a perspective as a woman, also doing ministerial kinds of things in the parish, and also seeing what my husband does uh, as a priest. Um, I got my, I got a lot of, uh, I have a number of degrees, uh, six degrees, five of them are in theology. 
And the last degree that I got was my PhD, and that was on the subject of the interpretation of the book of Revelation in the early church in the East. And um, since uh, even before I got my PhD, I've been teaching in a number of places. Krista mentioned the Coptic School of Theology in, in Anaheim. But uh, most of my work is down here in San Diego, where I teach at the University of San Diego, which is a Catholic institution, and also the Franciscan School of Theology, which is another graduate school. But I've taught at, at UCSD, uh, at um, community colleges, lots of different venues, also Orthodox schools of theology. So I've had um, a lot of experience in a diverse sort of a background with people of all kinds of different backgrounds, which has been very enriching. So um, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background because you're Greek Orthodox and, yes. you know, that's going to be new for a lot of our viewers. Uh, many sure. Protestants think that Catholicism and Orthodoxy are the same thing right. and, and they're not. So maybe you can give us about to address that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> let's talk about that. So what is Eastern Orthodoxy or Greek Orthodoxy? First of all, the Orthodox see themselves as being one church, not many churches. There's the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, the Finnish Orthodox, the Polish. They operate independently because that's how the early church was. But um, we see ourselves as one church because we have the same beliefs and the same practices and the same history. So what is that? It, it's nothing like Roman Catholic, except in a few sort of outward forms. So Protestants are always sort of um, framing their identity against Roman Catholicism because the Protestant movement grew out of Roman Catholicism. And to tell you the truth, if I had been in Western Europe at that time, I'd probably have been a Protestant too, because a lot of the things that the reformers were objecting to um, from the uh, about in Roman Catholicism were wrong um, that the things of the the corruption in the Roman church and the papacy and things like this. But the reason why there was a split in the church even before the Reformation was because we don't didn't agree with what the, the Pope was doing in Rome, but we didn't split. That's not how we see it. People say, well, they broke off, but we didn't break off. It was the Roman church that diverted itself, that changed the historical trajectory, all of the, the extraordinary claims of the papacy, the changes in liturgics, the changes to the creed, the change in theology, all of those things happened in Western Europe. And many of the changes that took place were what gave rise to the Protestant Reformation down the line. We never had a Reformation because we just continued with the same ancient teachings and ancient traditions and liturgical practices that were part of the early church. And so what's, how we're similar to the Catholic church is that we have clergy, we have hierarchs, but so do Protestants also. They have bishops, they have deacons, they have priests and things like this. But we don't, our thinking is very different and our attitude towards sin, towards salvation, um, towards the towards the clergy, things like that are very different than than in the Catholic Church. So we really shouldn't be lumped into with it. So it's, I'm always amused by people say, "Well, are you Protestant? Or are you Catholic?" Well, there's a third choice. There's a third option. <laughs> yeah, and it's so interesting because nobody ever thinks that that way. So whenever I watch some program where they're talking about what Christians think about something, they interview a Protestant, they'll interview a Catholic. And there's no consideration at all for the Orthodox 
and we are the second largest Christian group in the world behind the Roman Catholic. And everybody thinks, well, the second largest must be, I don't know, Lutherans or somebody like Baptists or, or Episcopalians, the Anglican communion. But we have, you know, 300, 400 million people who are Orthodox in the world. So we're a huge part of the Christian uh, communion, but we're kind of uh, ignored, basically. <laughs> we, we kind of fly under the radar. People don't really think about us because we're not part of Western culture in that respect, part of Western Europe. You right. know? Uh, th so that's why. It's hard to, I, I'm, I'll tell you what I've been working on. I've been working on a book uh, and it's going to be published this year called Thinking Orthodox. And I spent a couple of years really trying to crystallize, really trying to identify what it is that makes us different than the, the Protestants and Catholics. And it's not so much, it's not necessarily only our beliefs because we share so many beliefs in common, but it's how we think. And a lot of what we're gonna talk about today in terms of women and ministry in the early church, I think, I, I think you will see is very different than what most people what most people think about. And like Krista, you beautifully mentioned that there are two dichotomies, right? There's either egalitarianism or complementarianism when it comes to women in ministry. And there's always this tendency to be very polarized and think that there's only two ways to look at things, but there's always a third way. Yeah. And usually the orthodoxy falls in there in the middle of it. But it's difficult for people to understand because they're always thinking that it has to be one or the other. And they're not willing to accept the fact that there can be some, some point of view that embraces both because so much of what we believe as Christians is paradox, right? Yeah, I think that's a great give us. Yeah, that's ahead. a great setup because I think that right now Protestants are in an intractable problem of polarization on this issue. And and you only ever hear two options. Right. And right. I wanna what I have found so instructive of my study of of the early church fathers and some Orthodox thinkers is that it does offer like, oh, here's another way of thinking about this right. that gets me out of my American bubble. Yeah. And it's it's been very helpful. And I want to encourage our listeners, if they haven't done so, go check out our previous podcast, our conversation with our friend Carillos Gurgis, who is a Coptic friend. And talk to us about the question of, is Christianity a white man's religion? And talking about the North African roots of our faith. That was a wonderful conversation. Monique, you want to jump in? Yeah, I did. Um, I was just thinking about the idea of women in ministry. And a lot of times when I when I hear things about Christianity or um like the the early church fathers, it was it's more of a slant of you know Christianity is just this male religion. It's male dominated. Yeah. Um. Yeah. You know, like yeah. they want to keep women quiet or women have their place and things like that. What was the the yes. role of Good. life for women like in the early church? Thanks for asking the question. I'm glad you brought that up because I do think that in in light of um this whole I whole um cultural you know, combat between the sexes that's been promoted by many feminists that we have reached this position where people are attacking Christianity as though that were the cause 
of the subjugation of women. And in fact, Christ was the great liberator of women. And the early church did things that were really extraordinary. So when we look at the birth of the church within Judaism and within the Roman Empire during the first century, well, my goodness, how, how much better was the life of women compared to what they were in Judaism, for example, which still is the case in many Jewish sects. Where a lot, women are not always allowed to be rabbis. They're expected to be silent. They're definitely, they don't have the same rights as men, even in, among the Orthodox Jews today. So among Orthodox Jews, for example, a woman can't get a divorce. And there's a lot of discussion about this. And they're sort of held hostage if Maybe their husband is mistreating them, but they have no way of getting out of that marriage. The husband is still favored. Children stay with the father, not with the mother. So there was a lot of, you know, women were really their, the possession of their husband in Judaism. So, for example, um, uh, adultery was allowed on the part of the husband, unless as long as he wasn't having sex with another man's wife, he was allowed to visit a prostitute. Okay, or be with an unmarried woman. No, that would have been a, a prostitute anyhow. But that certainly was not allowed for the wife. Why? Because in Judaism, the wife was the property of her husband. He had exclusive rights over her body. And so that kind of mentality was very much part of Judaism. In Judaism, women could not testify in court. They were not allowed to testify in court because their, their testimony was considered inherently unreliable they were classified with insane people and children and they could not testify okay so that's part of the attitudes that were common uh for jews so um for christ as as a jewish man what did he do well he he welcomed women disciples that was unheard of unheard of in judaism um i i will just tell you give you an example of how some of these attitudes are still present, not, of course, not in all forms of Judaism today. There today, among the Reformed Jews, there are women rabbis and things like this. But this is still a problem in the more traditional forms of Judaism. So if you remember when, um, so I think most people will remember this, when, um, when Obama uh, or issued the order to kill Osama bin Laden. And he was watching, the, he and a lot of people from his cabinet were watching all of this play out. And Hillary Clinton was there and she covered her mouth. She was watching this and her, she had her mouth covered like this as she was watching all of this unfold. And that very famous picture of Obama and his cabinet in the war room watching this happen, um, that was seen all over the world. But on, in new, Israeli newspapers or even newspapers in the United States, Jewish newspapers that are in Hebrew in New York, they took out her picture. And that's because you cannot have a picture of a woman. Okay. And that's in, that's in America. And there are places in America and other in London and other places where women cannot walk on the same side of the street as men. Okay. That still happens in Judaism. So imagine what it was like back in Christ's time. Imagine what it was like for him to have women disciples. Not only were women disciples, but they traveled with him and they were providing the financial support for his ministry. Luke tells us that in his gospel. So Christ was the great liberator of women. He's not the oppressor of women. And the church being the body of Christ was never the oppressor of women. 
okay? A lot of these notions come through Western Europe, through the heavy clericalism. I, I hate to say, I don't wanna, I don't wanna bash the Catholic church, but the Catholic church being so, so um, dominated by men and by clerics and by bishops and the Pope and all this, it really, um, it really diminished the involvement, not only of women, but of lay men as well. Well, let, but, let me let me ask I mean? you a couple of qu- questions about Jesus's ministry that I'm curious about, because I've heard that, for example, the story of Mary and Martha. Yeah, um, that there's there's a line in I think it's in um, in the gospel that's I, I'm trying to remember if it's John or Luke who said it talks about. <laughs> That story and says that that one of the sisters sits at his feet and that that's a euphemism for somebody who is a disciple, that the disciples sit at the feet of their rabbi. Is is that consistent with what what you understand as well? That's exactly that is exactly correct, because teachers always sat. We think of students as sitting and teachers as standing, but it was a reverse. Teachers sat on a stool or a chair. And that's why today at a university, they have the chair of this and the chair of that, because the teacher was the one who occupied the chair. Students sat on the ground and so at the feet. And so definitely in that story, which is in the gospel of Luke, you have Mary being praised for sitting and learning, whereas Martha was running around and serving, right? And she objected to the fact that her sister wasn't helping her, but Jesus praised Mary's Uh, sitting and learning and said that she has chosen the better part. Not that what Martha was doing was no good because she was also serving. She was helping. She was cooking. So, but there's a time for that. And then there's a time for listening and learning. So Jesus praised Martha, praised Mary rather than Martha and saying, it's not going to be taken away from her. So that's a very important story in terms of how Jesus viewed women also, the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, the fact that he had a long conversation with her, a private conversation. And so when the disciples come back and they see him talking to her, they all want to say, why are you talking to her? Because that was an unusual thing to do, especially with a Samaritan. So, and, and you know, status made no difference. Jesus was open to having female disciples and he had them. And so, and the woman there, the Samaritan woman at the well, she really kind of goes on to become an evangelist of sorts of her community. And her name is preserved in historic tradition as being, you know, the first evangelist to the Samaritans. And that Philip, the evangelist, from what I understand, comes later in the book of Acts and builds on what she started there. Do I have that correct? Right. So she's she's literally an evangelist in the sense that she calls her village to come and meet Jesus. Right. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he be the Christ? So and first of all, notice that Jesus asks her to bring her husband. This is how he elicits the, her confession that she doesn't have a husband. She's been married five times, etc. So men were not supposed to speak to women in public. Even rabbis didn't speak to their own wives in public. That's how low the status of women was. But he obviously doesn't think there's anything wrong with having a conversation with her by saying that, go bring your husband. He was just eliciting this information from her so that he could show, you know, start talking about her life, which she changes the subject. But you are correct. 
she not only brings a village and the village welcomes Jesus and he stays with them for two days, but after that, uh, obviously they become believers. And they said, the villagers say, it's not because of your testimony, but because we have seen and we have heard and we believe that this is truly the savior of the world. So she brings a village to Jesus, but they also come to faith in Christ themselves. Afterwards, she is known in the early church. She takes a name, the baptismal name, Fotini, P-H-O-T-I-N-I. And she's a very famous saint in the Orthodox Church. And that means enlightened. Fotini, like the word fos, like photograph, anything having to do with the word fos is, means light. So she's the enlightened one. She had children and they all became saints and sisters. They traveled and they became evangelists themselves. Yeah. Oh, wow. Now, I have a question. So is there's a there's a difference and a distinction between an apostle and a disciple. OK, let's talk about that. Uh, we do have the, the way the term apostle is used today is different than the way the early church used it. So you sort of ask me about my background. I not only teach New Testament and introduction to the Bible, I teach early Christianity. So I'm, this is my field, okay? So I just want you to think about this. Um, the term disciple is generic. All of us who are Christians, we're all disciples of the Lord, right? Your term is just, disciple is just a learner. So somebody who's a Buddhist is disciple of the Buddha. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. However, apostle in the early church was specifically used for anybody who was an eyewitness of the Lord. That is, they were followers of his earthly ministry and they saw him alive again after the resurrection. And there were hundreds of apostles and we know this for a fact. Today, when we use the term apostle, we mean the 12. We're using it as synonymous with the 12. But if you look at the gospels, the 12 are called the 12, okay? And if you just look, you can do a search and do the 12, and you're going to see that that term comes up a lot. Or, you know, after the death of Judas, you have the 11, okay? But you have the 12. So the 12 are the leadership. They're called the 12. But apostle is much broader. And because that, because Jesus did have female disciples, they were also considered apostles. And we are certain of this for the following reason. Because in chapter 16 of Romans, when Paul is greeting various people in the Roman church, he mentions this married couple, Andronicus and Junia. And they are a married couple, and they're, he calls them apostles. Now, some translations have tried to make Junia a man. Okay. Okay. Now that's how I was taught in seminary. I'm going to have some disclosure here about okay, yes, what yes, I was I taught know. in seminary was that Junia was either one of two things. It was a man's name or it was a scribal error. The, because we all know, I think the latent assumption was we all know Women can't be apostles. Now, where do you get that idea from? From the Roman Catholic Church. Here's why. I gave a talk at a Catholic church here locally, and I wanted to talk about female apostles of the Lord. And they, they said, don't you mean female disciples? I said, no, female apostles. So the parish priest wasn't so sure about whether I should have that as my topic. Because 
the Roman Catholic Church identifies priesthood with apostleship, but it wasn't so in the early church. Okay, so they let me give my talk. I had to sort of give a disclaimer, but that's Catholic theology. That's not early church. What the Orthodox Church is, is the early church, and you asked me to talk about this early on, I don't think I ever really did. And so I'm, I'm, this is my approach to the Bible too. The, the Orthodox Church is the early church in continuity without changing anything. So we have the same ideas, the same mentality, et cetera, as the early church. So whatever they did, whatever they believed, whatever they taught, that's what we try to do. And so we try to preserve the early church. The Catholic Church, however, changed tremendously over the centuries and adopted new theology, new ideas. A lot of it had to do with women. So in Catholic uh, theology, in their theology of the priesthood, the priest has to be a man because he's modeling Jesus Christ. You don't see that kind of language in the early church. And the priest um, is, has, to, is, has um, sort of apostolic, uh, he's doing the work of the apostles. So this is why all of the apostles had to be men to, to, to follow that narrative, if you will. Let me tell you how we know that Junia was a woman and not a man. First of all, in some of the translations, it will say, greet Andronicus and Junius. They add an S. They are, they are men of note among the apostles. And so they really make oh. her into a man. But it doesn't say men. It says they are noteworthy among the apostles, for they were in Christ before me. These are, and they're relatives of Paul. And he says they were in Christ before him. So they were followers of the earthly Jesus. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. So the reason why an, eye, an apostle had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection is because that is the foundation of everything we do and teach as Christians. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the number one teaching of the church. So he could only send out people who were eyewitnesses of that because like Christ, like, like Paul talked about the cross and how it, impossible it was to believe in the cross. It's foolishness, right? So they had to have people who were eyewitnesses and there weren't just 12, there were hundreds of them. So let's talk about Junia. How do we know that Junia is not a man? Because that name, never appears in a masculine form in any Roman documents or inscriptions. So for example, we have names that can be either masculine or feminine, Maria or Mario, Patrick or Patricia. You know, we have a lot of names, Joanne or John, but there are some names that are only masculine and there are some names that are only feminine, okay? So an example of Catherine, okay, is a purely feminine name. You never see a masculine version of the name Catherine, okay? Junia is one of those names. There is no such thing as a man with the name Junius. That's how we know. This is a woman, okay? So she was an apostle. So we know how the term was used and why there were so we'll give you another example of how we know that apostle was more than just the 12 and then I'll be quiet. In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians when when Paul is listing the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. 
he mentions first Jesus first appeared to this and this and this. He mentions a lot of different groups. He mentions um, the apostles. He mentions the 12. He mentions James. He mentions Cephas or Peter and 500 people all at once. But all of these are different groups. So he after the 500 and after the 12, he mentions all of the apostles, which suggests to us that that is a group that's larger than the 500. So if you think about it, although we like the sort of romantic notion that only 12 people went out, maybe 13 if we count Paul, went out and spread the gospel, really, that's not exactly true. There were hundreds of apostles who spread the gospel, and some of them were women. That's really helpful and, and kind of confirms my own study as well. So that, that's nice to, to hear. I am wondering, a question I get sometimes that I've never really had a good answer to, I'm wondering your thoughts on is, is there any significance that the 12 were all men and how that fits into the framework of how Jesus is building his, his church? Yes, yes. Um, I think there is, because first of all, the 12 has to mirror the 12, you know, leaders, the 12 tribes. There's no question about that. Um, in terms of how, what it means, I think there is some meaning to the fact that Jesus chose 12 men. He didn't put a woman in there. And that the, in the early church, even though women did have um, leadership roles, which is, is very important this kind of thing was, as I said, unheard of in Judaism. The fact that women had leadership roles as teachers, as um, healers, even baptizers. So there are stories about that. Um, as prophets, as uh, speakers and deacons and things like this. We definitely see women assuming a wide variety of leadership roles in the church, along with other lay men. Um, the office of presbyter. And Episcopus or deacon seems to that which was one office in the early church. There was no distinction at the very beginning. That seems to have been reserved only for men. And uh, we could ask ourselves why, but we don't know. Jesus didn't tell us why. We just know that he uh, did not choose any woman to be among the 12. And in the early church, we don't see any women filling that position. So um, I have sort of uh, sort of ideas about why, but I there would just be pure speculation on my part. That's interesting because in Protestantism, in co the complementarian perspective, sometimes there's this sort of subtle, sometimes not so subtle narrative that the reason Jesus didn't pick women among the 12 was that, well, they were the daughters of Eve and they were more easily deceived and they wouldn't be able to be leaders in the church as effectively or that there's something kind of metaphysical about yes, men that yes, makes them yes. appointed as leaders. And yes, I'm wondering yeah. if you have yeah. any thoughts about that narrative <laughs> or if that's in the historic church. Yes, I, I'm so I hate that. <laughs> I hate that narrative. You have no idea how much I hate that. You've heard this too. before. Uh, yes, of course. You know, she was deceived, etc. Now, how do we see this play out in the early church? First of all, let's start with the question of, of Eve and the fall and all of this. And you mentioned sort of this. And I don't remember what you were saying. How, how did you put it again about, about men and um, 
And so they were sort of. Well, that there's just sort of this metaphysical difference between men and women that women are more easily deceived and men are kind of appointed to be the leaders. We can't say there's a medical physical physical difference, but um, I think that if we look at the early church, women did have a lot of leadership roles in the early church. We have them mentioned in the New Testament, Priscilla teaching Apollos, Phoebe, who's a deacon who's carrying the letter uh, to the Romans, etc. So we definitely see women engaged in all kinds of ministry and very active in the early church. I don't think there's a metaphysical difference, but here's my biggest objection to that whole argument about Eve, okay? And this is it. Because we, without question, we recognize that male and female are created equal, okay? That doesn't mean they're the same. That just means they're created equal, equally in the image and likeness of God, right? Male and female, he created them. Even in chapter two of Genesis, when we see the woman created from the side, from the rib of the man. She's not created from some other stuff. God doesn't look for some other material with which to fashion the woman. She's made from the same stuff as the man, right? So you cannot argue that there's some difference between men and women in that respect. However, that doesn't mean that we have identical roles, right? In society, in marriage, we obviously, women being the ones who give birth to babies, end up having a different kind of a role most of the time, but that doesn't have anything to do with um, a metaphysical difference. It's the it's part of, partly the part of partly nature, partly certainly given to us by God as a as a gift in many ways. But that doesn't mean that we are confined to that or that we must assume that role. One of the things that Jesus did. I'm going to get back to the whole question about Eve. One of the things that that happened in the church is that women were given the option not to get married, okay? So we have a lot of women in the early church choosing monasticism. And while that might sound to a lot of us, me included, like not such a great choice, do I wanna become a nun or do I wanna get married? But let's remember that that was at least an option. Before that, women had no option. What would you do? It's not like a woman could go out and have a career like today. They didn't go on dates and meet a man to marry. Their family chose their husband. There was no such thing as a career or a job, okay? Maybe you could do certain types of handicrafts and things like this, but mostly your choice was to get married or to become a nun. But nuns had an intellectual life and they had freedom and they had a life that was, you know, in which they were freed from the normal demands of husbands and children and household and things like this. And that those kinds of, that the life of a woman was very demanding because they didn't have any of the modern conveniences and prepared foods and things that we have today. So that was a life of real drudgery. So to have the option to choose monasticism was a really positive thing and a lot of women chose it. But let's talk about Eve. I'm sorry that my mind went there, but I was thinking about Jesus and the fact that women had another option. It's okay. I'm, I'm sitting here just learning and observing. <laughs> okay, good. So here we have, let's talk about Eve. So we have ma- male and female created by God in the image and likeness of God, right? So they're both in the image and likeness. There's not one that is higher or better than the other, but they, in that respect, obviously they are complementary because they're male and female. So there has to be some difference because they are male and female. 
All right. Now we have the fall. And what happens? The earth is cursed, Adam is cursed, and Eve is cursed. So they all fall under these kinds of, and of course, death enters, sin and death enter the world. Now, what happens with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Don't we teach, or we certainly should, that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ means the liberation of the human race from the effects of sin and death. That goes for Eve too, not just for Adam. So what? What? Because when because Eve of Eve's sin, it says your husband will lord over you, right? Shouldn't that be something that also ends with the death and resurrection of Jesus? Yes, it does. So that's why the church is very different from Judaism. You see, in the church, men and women are equal, but we don't really use that kind of language. Why don't we use the language of equality that was so popular in our culture? Why don't we use the language of equality? First of all, because the church isn't trying to model society. The church isn't mirroring society. The church thinks differently. Where is the word equality used in the New Testament? Philippians 2. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on human likeness. And being found in the likeness of men, he was obedient to death, even death on the cross. So when we talk about equality in the church, our example is Jesus Christ. And that's not about asserting oneself and insisting upon a position and insisting upon superiority or some kind of a place. It's about service and humility. So that's why the church doesn't talk and insist upon equality, but it does recognize that in the body of Christ, men and women have the same roles. You can both be a hand, you can be a foot, you can be an eye, you can be a whatever, except for the one thing that I mentioned, which is the presbyterate and the Episcopacy in the early church. Other than that, they have the same exact roles. They're monastics, they're teachers, chanters, preachers, exorcists, healers, and, and uh, other things too, deacons, etc. So, so I, yeah, go ahead, finish. I, so my, my point is that, that you cannot sit there and tell us that because of Eve, we are to be subject to men for the rest of time Otherwise, you're denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Yeah. Or it only happened for men. It didn't happen for women. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a great point. Um, I'm wondering, do you want to you jump no, in? Go ahead. All right. I'm wondering then, kind of as we move in the generations after the apostles, what happens to women in the church? Do they continue to play the same role or... As the church becomes more structured and organized, do yeah. does, does that role do those roles shift a bit? I think that I think that you're you you're making a certain point, which is a good point, that in the very, very beginning of the church, what we would call the primitive church, let's say at the time of Paul, for example, when he talks about the different things that women did in the church or people did in the church, let's say someplace like I'm thinking of uh, of um of uh, uh, Corinthians, he talks about uh, people being apostles, prophets, teachers, workers of miracles, 
gifts of healing, people who spoke in, in tongues. So all of those things were done by both genders. So it's not that, and that was what we call sort of charismatic offices. So in the early church, they tended more toward looking at whatever your charism was, whatever your gift was, your grace of the Holy Spirit, but it had nothing to do with your gender, just whatever gift you had. But as the church becomes a bit more structured, then I think you see, especially the emergence, the separation from the presbyterate and the episcopacy. Um, if you look at, for example, the pastoral epistles where, where Paul gives instructions to Timothy about how to choose uh, a bishop, the reason that he doesn't mention elders is because, he still mentions bishops and deacons because the word bishop and presbyter was used interchangeably at that time. Then toward the end of the first century, they start to say, okay, we need somebody who's going to be organizing all these presbyters. So then, then the term bishop or episcopus is separated as a higher order of clergy that we didn't have before. So the church becomes a little bit more structured, you could say. I think that's fair. And let's, let's face it, women, because of their, their roles as moms, as wives, simply didn't have the, the kind of time to devote to a lot of these things unless they were monastics. Then you, and also you do see some women historians and women iconographers and women um, writing hymns and things like this. But for the most part, I think a lot of, it was difficult for them to be very engaged in ministry unless they were widows or monastics because it's, they didn't have the time for it. But I don't think that women were completely excluded from those things. What did happen, however, is that the female diaconate seems to have disappeared after a few hundred years. And there's kind of a practical reason for that because the female deacons would baptize, uh, most converts to the Christian church were adults and they were baptized completely naked. So rather than having bishops or priests do that, the deaconess or the female deacon, it's not really deaconess, it's, a, it's the same word used for male deacon, but the female deacon would, immer would immerse the woman in the water. So after that, when most of the people were being baptized and were already, you know, being baptized as, um, when they were sort of were, uh, everybody was sort of born into a Christian family, then you don't see that so much. There was not so much of a need. That's what I mean to say. Okay. Wow. Being baptized naked. That, you know, that's a whole new, yeah. it's a whole yeah. new thing. He's naked. That's right. Well, anything now, naked. <laughs> if, if we see that there were, you know, um, like there's activity of women after um, the apostolic era and things like that. Yes. Why in the Orthodox tradition do are only men allowed to become priests? Because in the early church, only men were priests, but they didn't call them priests. They called them presbyters because a priest was somebody who sacrificed animals. So the Jews had priests and the pagans had priests and the Christians had presbyters or elders because Christians never sacrificed animals. Later, that term priest is applied to the presbyter, okay? But let's talk about why they never, because the early church didn't have them. So because we always follow whatever the early church did, we never started having um, 
female priests because the early church never had them because Jesus didn't choose any women to be among the 12. That's the, the short answer. So, yeah, from what I understand, the, what we call priests today in, in ancient church or presbyters, those were the kind of the ones who came after the 12. And so because oh, Jesus, well, do I have that right? True. Well, that's true, but the but the twelve also were the ones who would choose the leaders of these local parishes when they were say Paul, for example, puts Timothy in Ephesus, puts Titus in Crete. So that that's true, but the the bishops were the ones today we would say. But you're right, there there were no separate bishops come after the apostles. But um, that it seems that they only chose men, and that was seems to have been the will of the Lord. And one of the things that you I think it's important for us, we haven't even gotten into this whole topic of women speaking in church or anything like that, because I'm sure other people will say this is why women can't be can't be preachers or pastors or anything like that. I'm not talking about what's happening in the Protestant world today. I, I think that Protestants have no reason not to have female, you know, that they have their own theology. But in the early church, there were no female presbyters, and that's why the Orthodox continue to not have female presbyters. That's the reason. But I think that they will look for other things to, to, um, I think there's a, there's a lot of Christian traditions in which there's a very heavy sort of anti, uh, I don't want to say anti, but very a strong sense of male domination over women. And the idea that women, I, I was asked this question, whether or not I was told actually by somebody that women are not supposed to even teach other women that all teaching authority is given to men. That's not supported by the Bible. Women, the, the whole thing about women being silent in church, even that wasn't followed in. The, in other words, the, the interpretation of that is wrong. This is right. what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think that what was help. One thing that's been helpful for me to understand is kind of the office of of deacon in the early church was something that was open to women, and it was. It, early on, it was a very um, kind of broad title for a lot of different things that could fall under under that umbrella. And women, yes, and and so there was a lot of flexibility there. But as the the church grew and became more structured, um, you know, now I, I know in the my my Coptic friend tells me that the female diaconate is still a, a thing in in the Coptic church uh for the most well, part but you know other areas of orthodoxy that sort of waned so i i, I think that what the, the way they use that term in the coptic tradition is more akin to teacher okay um rather than as an ordained position in the orthodox church a female diaconate has basically disappeared there's been a lot of discussion about reviving it but then the question would be, for what purpose and what would the role be? Because the female diaconate had a pretty specific role of ministering to women and children, particularly in baptism of adults. So since that's really not an issue so much anymore, and even with adult converts, we don't baptize them naked anymore. Well, that's what That was the early church. That's one concession we've made. <laughs> but I don't think that they still have the female diaconate in that sense of an ordained position, in the even in the Coptic church. Okay. Anymore. All right. None of the Orthodox do, but they call them deacons or they'll call them, they're, they're more like a teaching ministry, but you're right that I think what we have to look at is, is what was 
open to women in the early church. And I, I would like to discuss this issue, if you're willing, about the injunctions that Paul gives about women being silent in church. Can sure. Yeah. That yes, because that, there's a comment on on one of our feeds about that. OK, so where do we see this? We see this, of course, in in First Corinthians in chapter 14. Now, how are we to understand that? How do we interpret that? Because one of the important things that we must do in, in biblical studies is to remember the context of a statement in which we, we don't just pluck verses out of the Bible and just take them as, as absolutes without considering the context. So in chapter 14, he says that women must be silent in the church. And if they want to ask their husbands something, let them ask them at home. So people have used that to say that women cannot be preachers, they cannot teach, and they have to just be quiet in church. What their job is to do is to just be quiet, okay? Well, how can that be a correct interpretation of that verse? When earlier, St. Paul was saying that when a woman prophesies, she should cover her head, right? So obviously they're giving prophecy in church. And even earlier in chapter 14, He's, he's talking here about de- proper behavior in the worship service. That is the context of that statement. Okay, and I will tell you that he says, listen, when you come together, each one, not just the man, each one has a hymn, a lesson. I'm in chapter 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. A tongue and interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If any speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or the most three, each in turn, and then let someone interpret. In other words, they were all talking at the same time. So there was chaos. So in a large portion of First Corinthians is about making sure that the worship service is done orderly and that people are reverent. Okay. It is in this context, after he just says each one is going to talk, he says women should keep silence in the churches for they're not permitted to speak but should be subordinate, even as the law says. And then it goes on to say, if she should ask her husband, if it's, it's, it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Well, obviously he's not talking about her role in the worship service, either to speak in a tongue or to give an interpretation or a prophecy or something like this. And even early church fathers in, understand it as them being quiet and not talking because we do have a tendency to be kind of chatty. And rather than saying to your husband, what did he say? I didn't hear what he said. What did that mean? You know, ask your husband at home. And that, that injunction could just as well have been given to men, but men don't talk as much as we do. That's just how they are, okay? So that, even in the early church, by people like St. John Chrysostom, who is, by the way, too often maligned as a misogynist, and he's not, He says that. He says that Paul here is simply talking about women holding conversations during the worship service. Now, the other place where we see this about women being silent and learning in submission is 1 Timothy chapter 2. Okay, he says, women should adorn themselves modestly, etc., Verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness. I permit no woman to teach or have authority over men. She is to keep silent and then, etc. Now, here again, this is Paul. But doesn't Paul have female teachers? 
Doesn't Paul have as one of his closest friends, Priscilla, who taught Apollos? So we don't just lift up those verses and use them to bash women over the head and say, you see, you have to keep quiet. We have to look at the context. In the early church, women were definitely teachers and preachers and apostles and all the rest. So he cannot mean that. So here again, the early church fathers, including Chrysostom, says he is not saying that women cannot teach. And even St. Gregory, the theologian of Nazianzus, says that it's not about that. It's about women having authority in the sense, and this is a very special word, it's not the usual word for authority, but it's a word that is used for Episcopal authority. I'm going to find the right uh, verse for you, okay? Authentine, authentine. It means a woman cannot have the, that is a word that is used for absolute authority. Authentia. It's not the usual word for authority. There's no English equivalent for this word. So when Paul says a woman cannot have authentia over a man, he means absolute authority. And that's the authority of the episcopacy, the authority of God, etc. That word is used very, very rarely. Okay. So she can teach. She can even teach her own husband. Okay, she can teach men. There's nothing to limit women to that. So this is a misinterpretation of this verse, not considering the historical context and how that verse was understood in the early church. Okay. That's very helpful. I, yeah. I wish I had learned that 25 years ago. It would have saved me a lot of grief. Uh, okay. Monique's going to read through some of the comments. So we're getting on uh, one of our Facebook feeds. There's okay. a couple of questions here. Yes. Um, actually, I'm not sure if this is more of a question or a comment, but it says, Rebecca Lynn says, I do believe women have an incredibly important role in the church, even as teachers, insofar as teaching women and children or outside of the pastoral role. But my main reason for shying away from personally approving of women serving specifically in the role of pastor elder is the vast majorities of those who are leading in this role are also showing great lack of discernment or wholly deceived. I understand some aren't, but in my experiences, it's the exception, not the rule that we should take note of. It's humbling ourselves to God's will, not our own. And then she says, just look to the fruit. It always tells the truth. The fruit of women who consider a man's special role in the home or church as lording over women is wrought with rotten fruit. Um, but to see both roles as equally important and yet vitally different and both in submission to Christ, respectively, leads to an abundance of good fruit. And that reminds me of what you said earlier in that in Protestantism right now with all of the different streams and veins and progressive Christianity and things like that. Um, yeah. Perhaps it is better that women aren't necessarily teaching right now. Is that was that your position? No. OK, because no. I, maybe I misunderstood. I misunderstood completely. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for asking the question, Rebecca. I, 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 I understand what you're saying. And I personally, but I'm speaking as an Orthodox Christian, I'm not in favor of a female priest in the Orthodox church. That's because we have never done that. Okay. We've, we are just following the tradition of the ancient church. I think there are reasons why that, why um, 
women weren't called to that by Christ, but I believe that's, that was his decision. And yes, we humbly accept what Christ decided. Now, however, among the many, many myriads of forms of Christianity, especially in the Protestant world, there are a lot of, of female leaders. And um, obviously, because there are so many different forms of, of Protestantism, if somebody doesn't agree with that, they wouldn't necessarily have to have a female you know, pastor if they don't agree with that. But I do agree with you, Rebecca, that uh, we are equally important as men, and yet we are not called to have the same exact role. However, in the early church, women were called and allowed to ministry and allowed to teach. But it's a charism. It's a gift of the spirit. And you have to be trained. You can't just get up there and start preaching. And there are a lot of people who do that. There are a lot of uh, Protestant churches where the pastor doesn't have to have any knowledge, real, real knowledge about the Bible right. or any training in, in pastoral direction. And this is disastrous. It is. So, yeah. So that it has yeah. so much to do with the gender as to do with whether or not the man is, has the right character is prepared theologically. I mean, you, people get up and they say whatever they comes off the top of their head. They feel like the Holy spirit is speaking through them. And that's, you can be equally deceived as a man, not just as a woman. I think yeah. that's a really good word. We yeah. did a show last summer with a friend of the, of the, of the ministry that, um, we we did a whole show on on the lack of seminary education among many Protestant and yes. especially non denominational right. um, trends right now in Protestantism. We we are um, very troubled by this because we think that this is a major problem yeah. for why so many churches are drifting into pr more progressive theology because their pastors are not being properly grounded yes. in the no historic grounding. Christian faith There's no foundation. You're right. It's not just progressive theology, but heresy. Yes. Okay. Because if you think that you can just start talking about the Bible, listen, you know, we can all do certain things as teachers and we should teach our children, Bible stories, tell our children about Jesus, tell Bible stories. That's fine. But when you start talking about difficult issues in the Bible, when you start talking about theology, you've got to have some education. Nobody would, nobody would hang up a shingle. They wouldn't be allowed to as a lawyer and guide people through the intricacies of the law without having training or medicine or anything else. Why would somebody think that they're qualified to direct a person's life in terms of their salvation with virtually no training or education at all. And there's, there's, a, there's a lot of pride. There's a lot of arrogance. Well, the Holy Spirit called me and so told me to be a preacher. Well, that's great. Go to seminary, learn something before you endeavor to teach other people. Okay. Even Paul talks against that. He talks against a new convert being put in a position of authority in a church. Okay. So. Rack that clip. We're going to make that into a clip. That was great. Okay, Monique's got another question. The next one is, okay. can you explain the requirements of a deacon? It only mentions men. Okay. Well, the requirements that Paul has for a deacon, yeah, he only mentions men, but I think that the same uh, things would apply. If you look at the kinds of things that Paul, talk, Paul talks about, he's talking about character. A deacon can only, and also a presbyter or a bishop, can only have been married once. They have to have a good character. They have to have good families, et cetera. So it's all a matter of choosing a person with good character. That was the requirement in the early church. And that must have applied to women as well. Very good. Yeah, do you have any more questions? I'm looking. I'm all looking. Right. Um, so I got one more question when we're at the very end. 
Let's see. Ah, wait. Think. Oh, just um, Jeremy has one. He said, "Are there many Orthodox folks?" And I, I know you hit the hit on this um, globally, but are there many Orthodox folks in America? Do you know about how many? Yes, um, we're still a minority in America with several million, you know, maybe four million, three million. We're still a, a, a minority um, in the United States, um, but there are Orthodox churches in every city, <laughs> practically, you know, every, certainly all the major cities and in most places will have an Orthodox church. And um, so there, we're, we're, we're here, but we're still not very well known. Um, uh, partly because I think in the past, uh, a lot of these churches were established by immigrants from Greece, from Russia, from, you know, from the Middle East and other places um, in West and Eastern Europe. So, and, uh, you know, Bulgaria, places like this. So they tended to be ethnic and some parishes are still very ethnic, but there are a lot of parishes that have all English or have a lot, very high percentage of people who are converts who don't come from any particular ethnic group. And you don't have to come from a particular ethnic group uh, to be a part of the Orthodox Church. You might, you know, if you're interested in that, you could go and see what Orthodox churches are in your area and try different ones and see if you can find one where you feel comfortable. Most of them are pretty welcoming. Awesome. The next one is, was the, attitude, was the attitude of men toward women in Hebrew culture a result of legalism or their interpretation of the law? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it has to, had to do with, um, uh, I'm not, I can't say, but I'm not 100% certain about that. Part of it has to do with Genesis, the, the whole Eve thing. And if you think about it, of course, you're going to be stuck there, right? Because if you don't have Jesus Christ, who reverses the effects of the fall, then you, you're stuck with this reality where men are dominant and women are, women are meant to be submissive and that's just it. Um, but also I think a lot of it has to do with um, the idea of ritual purity and impurity associated with women. And this is again, something that Jesus did not recognize. So when we talk about his attitude toward women, you have the woman with the hemorrhage who was afraid to speak to him, who was afraid to ask him for healing. And she just wanted to touch the fringe of his garment, right? And when he um, stopped and turned around and basically demanded that she come forward to give her testimony, then um, it was such a beautiful thing because he doesn't say, of course, you're unclean. She, he doesn't recognize that kind of thing. But I think that might have play, played a big part, played a big part of it. Because anything, any discharge of bodily fluids is uncleanliness in the, in the Old Testament law, right? Right. Okay. That... All right. I think we're good. Okay. Um, okay. All right. So my last question is just to give our viewers a, just a little snippet of an of a interesting, I think, difference between Protestantism and and Orthodox practice. One of the more interesting things that I've learned about is the role of the priest as kind of a spiritual father in the the life of the parishioner. And mm -hmm. I think that many of us in Protestantism don't, don't yeah. realize the uh, kind of spiritual and, and uh, emotional poverty that we suffer that we don't really even realize yes. because of uh, fatherlessness and having spiritual direction. And I'm just wondering if maybe you could, 
share with us a little bit about that aspect of the Orthodox uh, tradition. Yeah, I think I think what you said is very profound. I, I really never even thought about it to that extent, but you're right. There is so much um, poverty and so much in terms of you know, the lack of a sense of having a spiritual director. If your pastor is primarily, and for many in the Protestant tradition, the pastor is really judged on how well he can deliver a sermon, right? And of course, there's other ministries that are part of the parish, but a lot of it has to do with your ability to, your preaching ability. But that's just a very small part of what a pre, an Orthodox priest would do, for example. But it's the idea of spiritual fatherhood is also part of the Bible. When St. Paul says, I became your father in Christ Jesus, and you have many guides, but you do not have many fathers, he said, I became your father in Christ Jesus. So people developed a very intimate relationship with Paul and since as a father, as a spiritual father, somebody to whom they could confide, somebody who would direct them. And so much of the spiritual life really does require an experienced person who will guide you and somebody that you can talk to. And I, I love the way you put your question because so often today, we, there are so many people who are really struggling and they don't know where to turn and they have psychological issues. Sometimes there are family problems, marriage problems, and you need an objective person to talk to about these things because very often we can't see um, beyond our own experience and also because we're so invested in the emotions of a problem or of a situation we need an independent third person to sort of bounce things off of and the the priests in the orthodox church do this very well and um it is a position i think what's really different for a priesthood in from the orthodox perspective than the catholic perspective is i think because in the orthodox church Lay people have a lot of influence and a lot of say in what happens in parishes. So it isn't, we don't have the feeling that the priest is in charge of everything. There's no heavy sense of authority like you have in the Catholic Church, where you have the Pope, then you have the cardinals, then the bishops, and then the priests, and then the lay people down here. They don't really have a say. In Orthodoxy, we've always felt very um, much a part of the church and determining, even on a very basic level, the uh, direction of our church. So even though we have a hierarchy, there's also a very strong lay tradition. And so the priest isn't so much seen as having this kind of power. Maybe that's why Orthodox women don't, they're not clamoring for the priesthood because the priesthood isn't seen as a position of power, but a position of service, the way Jesus served you know, he came, he said, I came not to be served, but to serve. And to show this, he washed the feet of the disciples. That's not just a, a gesture to be imitated on Holy Thursday. It's reality. So the priest is really the father of the parish. He's the servant of the parish. People call him when they have problems. They, they're upset about something. There's a family crisis. Somebody is sick. Somebody is dying. Somebody's getting married. So he's very much a part of their life. And they also talk to him about their problems. So that's a very beautiful thing. And it creates very strong relationships in the parish. But it's, again, a biblical thing. And it was part of the early church. Well, I just want to say thank you, Dr. Constantinou, for, um, for having just sewing, yes, sewing into us and giving us all the so much great information. I just want to say thank you publicly for 
how you've sowed into my life in ministry. You didn't even know you were doing it, but you you have helped me so much in my faith and grown in my faith. And I want to recommend all of our viewers to go check out Dr. Constantinou's uh, podcast, search the scriptures on ancient faith radio. Um, It has been a blessing in my life. In fact, if you go to the, the old podcast and you start at the very beginning, that was kind of life changing for me about five or six years ago. I was really struggling with some things in my faith and she, her teachings really helped to um, get me grounded and, and uh, give me a paradigm to help walk through this crazy cultural moment. And the things that I share on my channel and the things that we share here together on, on the show have been, she has had a huge part in shaping that for me. And so in effect, reaching thousands of people through this podcast in helping to ground me in the faith through the historic Christian worldview and asking questions and just extending my education. I just want to say publicly, thank you, Dr. Thank you so much, Krista. I really appreciate that. And it's not so much my teachings. It's what the, like, you know, like what you said, the historic ancient church what did the early church believe teach how do they behave that's what we try to do as orthodox christians so it's really not coming from me just coming from the orthodox tradition of christianity well we appreciate all your your the clarity and your voice it's been so helpful to us so thank you so much and god bless both of you god bless bless you yeah okay and all of your viewers all right thank you god bless goodbye Wow. I was good. It's not every day I get to talk to like an intellectual hero. That's, I'm such a fan. Okay. I'm, I'm really just, yeah. Okay. I learned a lot. That was really good. I did too, really actually. Good. And it was really good. I, we're going to have to rack a few of those clips. So um, hopefully everyone enjoyed that. It's just a little different perspective than the whole a lot women, of comments that, that are women in like, ministry. You know, things. I learned so much this evening. If we didn't, if we missed your comment, I'm sorry. If we missed your question, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Yeah. We, just tr- we tried wanted, to get them in. Tried to get them all in and also be aware of time. But thank you so much for all the comments of people learning so much. It's awesome. Yeah. It's always to be a goal to be informative. Okay. So we got a few minutes left. Um, you did a thing this week. You made a blog post. I did. I did. Uh, about uh, Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. So, I do believe they do. Yeah, really three do. reasons why Christians should not support Black Lives Matter. So got a lot of shares, got a lot of action. Yeah, I think it's somewhere um, around 200 shares, something like that. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's a little crazy. So um, maybe you could just kind of, I think the big question that people gave us in response to your article, because your article is mostly focused on the Black Lives Matter, the organization. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 one of the big questions people had about it was, can I support the idea of Black Lives Matter while not supporting the organization itself? Sure. I just don't know that you can use the hashtag. Okay. Because I think it's conflated. I think, I think they're one in the same at this point. And we don't want, or at least this is my take. I'm going to say, you know, I'm not speaking for everybody. Um, You're not speaking for everybody on the planet. I'm not. I'm not. But I wouldn't want to use a hashtag that would potentially mislead someone or potentially think, you know, here I am as a Christian leader in some regards. And 
you know, I have this hashtag of Black Lives Matter and now people think, well, it's okay to adopt their philosophies because they don't understand the difference between the hashtag and the actual movement. And some people are posting the hashtag because of the movement. I just, yeah, it to and me, it just gets too gray. We, we watched an interesting video this week together by one of the founders of Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. And it's on the real news network, which seems to be a fairly progressive channel. Yeah. And uh, if people go there, they can search for this video. It's, it's on the history of the Black Lives Matter movement. They interview one of the founders. It was founded by three women. Yeah. I didn't know this. And two of them would self-identify as being queer. Yeah. And she states quite explicitly in that interview that um, their purpose is to, for the hashtag, is to have it not be adulterated. You know, that it's it's very much, they want their movement and the organization to be tied to the hashtag. Yes. They do she, not want it to be hijacked or changed. Basically or what they're saying is, I said what I said. You know, like that that little, that little, um, I feel like phrase that's going around right now, like, hey, I said what I said. And that's kind of, that's what she's saying. Like, Black Lives Matter. I said what I said. Like, I'm not trying to have you say all lives matter. I'm not trying to have you say blue lives matter. I'm not trying to have you say, you know, whatever lives matter. It's Black Lives Matter. And I respect that. You know, if that is her stand and that's what she's putting forth as her, you know, organizational standpoint, who am I to say, you know, well, that, then please change that. You can stand where you stand, and I'm going to stand where I stand. And in that vein, though, is why I say I don't know that we can use the hashtag even even though we do believe that Black Lives Matter. Sure, yeah. And I think in that clip, it's also interesting that she explicitly states that she and her partner, in co- one of the co-founders, were trained in, she calls herself a trained Marxist, mm-hmm. a community organizer, and that this is part of their ideology so you're not being unkind or uncharitable and saying these things in no, your in no. your blog post. This is from them directly. Yes, and I think that that's an important point. Um, now, could we, if we want to, another question we've been getting is, well, how can I stand with um, my black friends, family, brothers and sisters in the Lord if I don't use this hashtag? Could we just make a post stating our theology, but not use the hashtag? I think there's so much cultural pressure right now about the hashtag. If you don't use the hashtag, silence is violence kind of a thing. Yeah, and I I think that's weird. Like, I just wonder at what point did we get away from the idea of relationship? Like, me sitting next to you and letting you know that I care and that we're in this together. You know, what? at what point did 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 hashtags take the place of relationship? Mm. At what point did hashtags take the, the place of Christian charity? You know, at where did, where did all this switch in our culture? So now culture is telling me white silence is violence and I have to use this hashtag, but as Christians, we don't adopt that framework. I can reject that because that does not go with the ethos of Christianity, of historic Christianity. I think today some pastors might get on the pulpit or in the stage and say, you know, you have to use this hashtag. And if you don't, then, you know, blah, 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 whatever. But that's, 
there were no hashtags in Jesus day, you know, and because there weren't any hashtags in Jesus day, they just went around doing what they did. They fed the poor. They cared for the orphan and the widow. They rescued the children in the dump. People started schools. They spoke out against slavery. Like, but there was no hashtag, you know, so why do I now need to accompany or couple my my action with a hashtag to be legitimized? In, yeah. In order to be legitimized, like that's what culture is telling me I must do. But what does the word say I must do? Yeah. Black lives do matter. I'm black. I, I, I'll keep saying this. I'll keep saying it over and over and over again. Black lives matter, y'all. I'm black. Hi. But we Just, don't, we don't have week. to prove. But our I don't stand. have to prove my stand to anyone. I can be in relationship. I can, I can, the, the proof of my stand can be evident as I walk out my life. That's it good. doesn't have to be, oh, oh my gosh, like I'm so woke. I'm so down because I use the hashtag. Yeah, I see what you're saying there. You know, and yeah. it's like, if you really want to make an impact, your hashtag ain't making no impact. Like, let's just be clear. Can we be, what, what is your hashtag really proving? Your, your life proves something. When you get in the life of someone else, go tutor somebody. You good at math? Go tutor a kid. You know, you want to go um, make a make an impact, volunteer at your local shelter, at your local food bank. They're um, everywhere. They're, I mentor mean, somebody. Yeah. Teach budgeting, you know, in the inner city if, if, if that's a need. Like, find out what are the needs within your community and do that. Because your hashtag, hello, is just being, being seen on social media. And in reality, what you're doing is just making a social media stand. I don't know that God has called us to make a social media stand. I think he's called us to make an impact. And that, that is in the real, the real world. In that real, is in real, the, and see, here I come. Real. I'm just, just getting, uh, Justin, get out the fan. I'm on yeah, the sermon. Jeremy, yes. Um, oh, yes. We got the fans. Yes. <laughs> It shouldn't be this hard. Just love everyone. You know, and and Annette, it shouldn't be this hard, but the word love has been hijacked too. You know, love is synonymous right now with with approval, you know, and and saying yes. Sometimes I love you and I'm going to say no. Yeah. You know, and so we have to be careful even with these words and how we're defining things. But y'all don't get tripped up on this social media train. Like I got to do this. And if I don't do this and I'm being I'm being violent. And if I don't do this, then, you know, people aren't going to approve me. People might cancel you. Like, let's just be real. But what is the stand that you're going to take? Are you going to still go out and make an impact whether you're canceled or not? Because your hashtag ain't doing nothing. Okay, another question. That's rough. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have said it like that. No, that's good. Sorry. All right. All right, another question is that we're getting, and this is sort of connected to what you're saying there, is we're getting a lot of what social movement can I get behind while there's so much momentum right now? Um, and if there isn't one, why isn't the church stepping in to fill that void? That, I think that's a very provocative question. Say it again. Sorry, I, I know you weren't even listening oh, because I was reading the comment. I was trying to see if it had anything to do with what I was just saying. All right. Wait, I'm going to ask Jennifer a question. Jennifer DeFreitz. And I'm not sure if I pronounced that right. I'm sorry if I didn't. I'm not sure that is what the statement meant. I heard a teaching about the fruit, meaning of if it lines up with the scripture and teaching of Jesus. Are you referring to what was talked about by Dr. Constantinou? Or are you talking about something that I'm talking about? If you can just add some clarity, I'd appreciate it, Jennifer. Thank you. Okay, go ahead. Now I'm going to go back to my question. There we go. All right. So uh, what social movement can we get behind while there's so much momentum to talk about race? 
if there isn't one, why isn't the church stepping up to fill that void? Okay. So, I think that there, yes, I think there is a void. I think that... Because everyone's directing people to things like Be the Bridge yeah. as, as the racial reconciliation Because that's model. the only thing that's out there. Yeah. Along with Lucretia Carter Berry. Yeah, so... So, those are the two things that are out there. What happened, in my personal opinion, is that in the 50s and 60s, when we had the civil rights movements and all those things... Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King. The liberal church stepped up. Liberal Christians stepped up and were like, you know what? The people were dying. Yes, liberal white Christians were, were stepping up and were and literally you can go and look at the names of white people who died behind this movement. When you look at the conservative Protestant church, people were quiet. The white evangelical conservative church, they didn't have much to say. And now what we get and sent from that time forward I would say I, I haven't seen much from there's some, but it's, I, it's but I haven't seen much. Yeah, and so I'm not. It's not like a, this huge disc come down, you know, thing like that. It's really not. What it is is, sorry, we just had a little, you know, things falling. Um, what it is is there. There's a void, and it, you know, if it if there were more conversations. I've never in my years of living and going to church, I have never been in church and had a sermon about anything regarded to any kind of racial, racial, anything, you know, and now here we are, you know, 60 years past, you know, some of these movements and we're trying to play catch up. But what's happened is that some veins, some streams of Protestantism, Protestantism, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, we're having these conversations, but unfortunately, those have also been the ones to adopt critical theory and critical race theory. And so there is this this void of like, well, how do we fill this space before CRT gets in? Well, now we have to play catch up. We have to gain the trust. We have because we weren't there in the beginning. So now people are like, I don't know if I can really trust that. You guys haven't been talking about justice or race or anything in the longest time. And now now all of a sudden, yeah, you know, conservative Protestants are want to have these conversations. And we're seeing things like Louis Giglio interviewing Lecrae and every ministry, you know, well, we're some black people we can dig up and, and have a conversation about race. Well, the question is, is where were these efforts for the last 50 years? It, it was sparse. And because I think the thought leaders in evangelical theology have not been at the forefront of developing a rigorous theological model mm -hmm. for racial unity, there is this, this void that's been yeah. created. And so people went out in the world, got critical race theory, kind brought of it back into the church, baptized it with Jesus mm -hmm. and brought it in. Yes. And so it's, it's, it, we're living in a moment right now that I think you and I share this opinion is a missed opportunity. Yeah. That it, we're living in the fruit of a missed opportunity. And boy, is it some unpleasant fruit. And I think that another point that's really important for us to make is that um, even though you and I are skeptical about critical race theory, that doesn't mean that you and I don't think that race conversations need to happen. Yeah, like, definitely. Like people can't use us as a cover story 
to get out of uncomfortable conversations about race. No, we still think that there need to be some conversations about race and doing better. We're just saying critical race theory is not the way. Mm -hmm. That's not the bus Christians want to be on. Yeah. We want to forge a path to doing something um, a different way. And one of the goals that, that I know you have is to, you know, more as a, like a three to five year goal is to bring together thought leaders um, in Christianity to, to develop a better model. And how can we begin to, 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 to have an intellectual project of publishing a better way? Yeah, and I don't know that it can wait three to five years. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, th this is something that we need to be having conversations about right now. And this is why I'm saying, you know, your hashtag, as much as we may want to prove to our friends on social media that we care, our hashtag isn't truly the evidence or the fruit of our caring. Like, getting in the conversation, going and being active within your community, um, those are the fruits. Like, begin to have those steps and, and walk these things out. But we, you we don't, don't need a, You don't need a program. No. You don't need a pro. Like, we want to no. tell people, like, please, like, we, we understand, we respect, we're, we're trying to be compassionate, but don't wait for us to build a program. Go out in your community. There are so many worthy things already happening with local churches in your community. If you want to stand for the poor, if you want to stand for people, trust me, there are good things happening in your community. You just have to go look for them. Or maybe you don't want to go hang out with the poor. That's cool. Invite people over in your neighborhood. Like, are you talking... Okay, yeah. maybe you maybe you live like in just an all white community. That's cool. But I am sure because my people, we do expand and we go places that there has got to be somebody <laughs> around your sphere who is a person of color. You are, are invite people over, like have a potluck, like get, just get in relationship. It doesn't, you don't need to do it for the, the fact of like, well, now social media tells me I need to have three black friends and I need to be standing up for this or doing that. Like, I think that part of, of the, the Christian ethos and example was just living in community with one another. And if we're living in community with one another, our skin color wasn't the first, first thought. The first thought of that, you know, and just invite people over, be in community, be in relationship. If your church isn't doing that, start it, like get a vision and start it. <laughs> That is what's important. It's how we are walking this out with one another. And as we walk this out with one another, then that will grow and develop to being walked out within our community. But people have to have a vision for it. Yeah, that's really good. Okay. I think we finally reached the end. I think so. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed the show tonight and that you found it educational and uh, helpful. We want to encourage you to share the show and uh, be sure to check out Center for Biblical Unity. You can follow them on Facebook, uh, my page, Theology Mom. Yes. And all the things show. We want to thank you for watching tonight. And we do look forward to continuing the conversation next week. We're having on Dr. Thaddeus Williams. Um, he wrote a book called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. And I also contributed a little bit. I was excited about that. 
he is a professor at Biola. He teaches in the Bible department and he talks a lot about social justice. And I'm really excited about that because he looks at the Christian he looks at social justice from a Christian perspective. Like, you know, everything that people are calling justice issues right now aren't really justice issues. And everything that people are saying should be social justice is not a biblical ideal for social justice. So getting into some of those conversations of, you know, how do we do this and not compromise our truth? Very good. Looking forward to it. We will see you on social media. We do thank you for watching. Be sure to share the show. Thank you so much for watching. Good night. God bless. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.